Would you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 24 this morning as we look at Luke's account of the resurrection. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along, there are some in the chairs where, below the seats where you're sitting, and you could use those as well. But I'm going to read for us the beginning of chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them, who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come to hear these wonderful words of truth that proclaim the good news that Jesus is alive. And Father, I pray that as we listen to these passages that are familiar for us, that you would speak afresh to our hearts and minds, that we would share in the joy and the wonder of the resurrection, and that that truth would change our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are certain events in history that define a generation and change our world. For our generation today, certainly September 11, 2001, was the day that will stick in our memory. When two planes were hijacked by terrorists and flown into the World Trade Towers, causing them to collapse. And we think about all that has happened in our world since that time. The wars that have been fought to try and eliminate or reduce terrorism the concern that we have for homeland security, the way it changes travel at airports or major public events or at stadiums or things like that, our world changed because of what took place that day. For my parents' generation, December 7th, 1941, was the day that changed their lives. And that was the day when the Japanese launched a surprise attack on the Pacific Fleet in Pearl Harbor, a day that President Roosevelt said would live in infamy, and you can think about how many people entered into that war and lost their lives, how a nation was mobilized along with other nations of the world, and it shaped boundaries and political uh, dominions, if you will, in our world. But no event, no event has had a greater impact on world history than the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even our calendar, even the way that we mark time is divided by the life of Jesus Christ, before Christ or after Christ. Uh, we think of his 
resurrection is really the exclamation point on his life and ministry, his claims. I mean, it vindicated his claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and it gave hope to the world. And today, there are somewhere around 2 billion people in our world who will gather today to worship Jesus in services just like ours and declare that he is their Lord and Savior. That is astounding. And what we see as we read through this account of Luke's resurrection are some pretty significant things that took place there. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus is a shattering historical event. And one of the things that Luke makes very clear in this text is that no one expected it. Not even those who were followers of Jesus. When you look at the women who went to the tomb that morning, I mean, what did they expect to find? Why were they going to the tomb? They had brought spices to anoint the body of Jesus to give him a proper burial. Jesus had died on what we call Good Friday, and he was laid in a tomb in haste because the Sabbath was approaching and they couldn't work on the Sabbath. And so there wasn't time to prepare all of the spices and the things that they would use to care for the body of someone they loved who was deceased. So the women waited until early on the morning, Sunday morning after the Sabbath, to go to the tomb. But what did they find when they arrive at the tomb? What they find is that the stone has been rolled away and the tomb is open and the body is missing. It's gone. And while they're wondering about this, two men in clothes that gleam like lightning come up to them and they say that, you know, he's not here. I mean, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Don't you remember what he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? Those words that the Son of Man would be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. A little later in chapter 24, Luke talks about uh, two men who were also followers of Jesus that were on the road to Emmaus. They too did not expect a resurrection. In verse 13, it says that on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, just like we talk about news events, you know, or things of interest to us, and we go, hey, did you hear? Or what do you think about, you know? And so they're talking on the road. And as they discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. One of these kind of humorous parts of this story where here's Jesus, he comes up to them and he goes, you know, so uh, guys, what's been happening? What are you talking about? And they stood still and their faces were downcast. And one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened in these days? Come on, where have you been? I mean, don't you know what's been going on here? It's, it's big news, it's all over town, and you don't know? And so they tell him. Jesus goes, well, what things? How about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet and powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. 
but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. I mean, they're, they're sharing they had thought he was the Messiah. They had hoped that this would be the time when God would restore all things and establish his kingdom. What is more, though, it's the third day since all this took place, and in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had a, had a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see him. And they're wondering, what has happened? They certainly did not expect a resurrection. And even the disciples, when the women came back from the tomb and told them what they had seen and heard, when those guys, they thought it sounded like nonsense. They didn't understand. And even later that day, they're going to gather in secret, and they'll be in a room that's locked, and Jesus appears to them, and they think that it's a ghost. And Jesus says to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and blood like I do. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And he ate with them. See, I'm real, I'm flesh and blood, I, I'm bones, I'm living, I'm here among you, and I will eat with you. The disciples, even they, did not expect a resurrection. Now, you know, I look at this and I think of how uh, these events, the truth of it, the proof that they had seen would be the very thing that would change their life. But I would say to you that there is hope here for anyone who has questions, who has fear or doubt or maybe even a little bit of skepticism about the resurrection of Jesus. You're in good company. That's the way the disciples were at the beginning. And what they recorded here in the Gospels are their eyewitness accounts so that you might read and study and come to believe that Jesus is alive. They want you to know the truth of what they saw and heard that day. Alistair McGrath is a name you may recognize as he speaks or you may have heard him on the radio. He's a former atheist who's become a believer in Christ. He's a theologian and a scientist. And he tells this story about the first time that he awakened to the hope of Christ's resurrection. He said, as a young man, I was a grumpy and frankly, a rather arrogant atheist. I was totally convinced that there was no God and that anyone who thought there was a God needed to be locked up for his or her own good. I was majoring in the sciences at high school. I had won a scholarship to study chemistry at Oxford University that would begin in October of 1971. I had every reason to believe that studying the sciences would further confirm my rampant godlessness. And while waiting to go to Oxford, I decided to work my way through a pile of improving books, classics, things that he wanted to read just to expand his knowledge. And he said, needless to say, none of them were religious. Eventually, I came to a classic work of philosophy, Plato's Republic. I couldn't make sense of everything I read, but one image sketched itself into my imagination. Plato asks us to imagine a group of men that are living in a cave. 
And the only world they know is a world of flickering shadows on the wall caused by the fire. And they know nothing of an outside world. And having experienced no other world, they assume the shadows are the only reality. Yet the reader knows and is expected or meant to know that there is another world beyond the cave awaiting discovery. As I read this passage, the hard-nosed rationalist within me smiled condescendingly. Typical escapist superstition. What you see is what you get. That's all it is, and that's the end of the matter. And yet a still, small voice within me whispered words of doubt. What if this world is only part of the story? What if this world is only a shadow land? What if beyond this world is another world that is wonderful beyond our imagination? It was those questions, those seeds that were planted that it would eventually lead him to faith in Christ. They were the beginning of a journey that took him to faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a shattering historical event. It breaks the paradigms of our world. The resurrection is also the key to understanding all the scriptures. For example, the women who came to the tomb that day, what did the angels tell them? Well, the angels said, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. Remember what he said, that he was going to suffer and die and be crucified and rise again. And then they remembered his words. You see, prior to his death, Jesus told his followers exactly what was going to happen to him on several occasions. Luke records three of them. There are other places where there are hints of what is going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. One of the clearest, though, is his third, the third time he said it, that's recorded in Luke 18. Look at this. Jesus took the twelve aside and he told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. And the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. They didn't know what he was talking about. They had no category for a crucified Messiah. I mean, they thought Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah was come, this is going to be the time he's going to establish his kingdom, reign forevermore. We're in, it's good. They could not fathom, and they just kind of blocked it out of their mind. But Jesus had told them exactly what was going to happen. And what about the men who were walking to Emmaus? What did Jesus say to them? He said, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was written about him in all the scriptures. What a great Old Testament survey that would have been. I mean, to listen to Jesus as he takes what was written in Genesis and Exodus and in the Psalms and in the prophets and says, this was speaking about me. That's what we find throughout the New Testament. And many people come to the Bible and they, they don't understand that this book is not like other books. 
You know, this book is not like a novel where one guy sat down at one point in history and he wrote out the whole thing and he wove together kind of these twists and plots and everything to make it come out at the end. The Bible's not like that. The Bible is not one book, it's 66 books that were written over a period of 1,500 years by over 40 different authors from all different kinds of walks of life, and yet there is a unity here. And when you understand that, and you go, some of these books were written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. Take one book, for example. Let's take the book of Isaiah, written again 700 years before Christ was born. What did he say about the Messiah? It's staggering. In Isaiah 7.14, he said that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. He would enter this world in a most unusual way with a virgin birth. In chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, he said that his ministry would take place primarily in Galilee by the sea. Where did Jesus minister? By the Sea of Galilee. He would be called names like Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I mean, those are titles that are staggering to think of a child who's going to be born that would be called these kinds of things. He would reign on David's throne. His kingdom would never end. In chapter 11, verse 1, he said that the Messiah would come up from the stump of Jesse and the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him and what does that mean? What's that symbolize? A stump. Isaiah wrote at a time when Israel was a dominant power in the Middle East. But Assyria was rising. Babylon would come a century or more after them. And Israel would be destroyed. First Assyria would carry away the northern ten tribes. And then later Babylon would come and wipe out Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And the line of David was hanging by a thread. The kingdom of God, if you will, at that point, the kingdom of Israel had been reduced down to about the size of a postage stamp. I mean, it was almost all gone. And out of that stump would come one who would be the Messiah. And his shoot would spring up, and on him would rest the Spirit of the Lord. Isaiah describes the sevenfold Spirit of the Lord. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the one in whom the Spirit dwelt without measure to the fullest. And you go on, and Isaiah 42, 1-4, God would call the Messiah my servant, my chosen one in whom I delight. Those were words that were spoken by God at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration. In Isaiah 62, Jesus quoted this passage when he got up to read from the prophet in the synagogue that he would be one who would preach good news to the poor, he would bind up the brokenhearted, he would proclaim freedom for the captives. And Jesus said, today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. And he sat down. And the people were stunned by what he said. He was identifying himself as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of Scripture. And then finally, in Isaiah 52 and 53, which talks about the suffering servant, I mean, these passages are astounding. If you don't have a habit to go back and look at these chapters every Easter, uh, I would encourage you to do that. These passages about the suffering servant explain why he died, how he would die, what would happen to him after his death, and what was the significance of his death. Isaiah wrote, 
in 53.5, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Why did he die? He died in our place to pay for our sins. A little later, in verse 9, he says that he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. How can that be? How can it be both with the wicked and with the rich in his death? Well, we know from the accounts of Christ's death that he was crucified between two common criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And he was laid in the tomb of a rich man as Joseph of Arimathea would come and ask for the body of Jesus to give it a proper burial. Those are events you can't control about your own life. Those are events that God had ordained to happen in the life of Jesus. And it happened to him though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He did not die for his sins, but for ours. And that testimony was given throughout the Gospels that there was no sin in him. And then in verse 11, Isaiah writes that after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied that the grave's not going to hold him. He's going to rise again. And he will see the joy of that. He will see the light of life. And it is by the knowledge of him that my righteous one will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. It is through our knowledge of Christ that we are saved. It's through faith in him and what he did for us that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. It is all there and much, much more for anyone to look at the evidence and the claims that are made. John Calvin wrote a preface to a French translation of the New Testament in 1535, and he talked about how Christ is present throughout the scriptures. Here's what he said. He said that he, Jesus Christ, is Isaac, the beloved son of the Father, who was offered as a sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. He's the good and compassionate brother Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. He's the great sacrifice and bishop Melchizedek, who was offered an eternal sacrifice once for all. Jesus is the sovereign lawgiver, Moses, writing his law on the tablets of our hearts by his Spirit. He is the faithful captain and guide, Joshua, to lead us to our promised land. He's the victorious and noble King David, bringing by his hand all rebellious power to subjection. Jesus is the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. He's the strong and powerful Samson who by his death has overwhelmed all of his enemies. This is what we should seek in the whole of Scripture, to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. If one were to sift thoroughly the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw and bring us to Christ. Therefore does Paul say in another passage that he would know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen? Amen. I mean, that's, that's powerful. That's, that's what we see written in the pages of Scripture. And the key to understanding the Scripture is Jesus Christ. It's the cross and the resurrection. It's Jesus as Savior 
who suffered and died for us, and it is Jesus as Lord and coming King. But thirdly, the resurrection is good news for all people. Good news of great joy for all people. Those were the words spoken by the angels at Jesus' birth. Now, I think of how Luke frames this. I mean, Luke chapter 2, he's telling the story of Jesus' birth. And the angels that appeared to the shepherds, what did they say? They said, do not be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is Christ the Lord. And when they heard this, I mean, they ran to hear and see what they had been told. Good news is meant to be shared. And just like the shepherds hurried off to find Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, so too the women at the tomb hurried to tell the disciples, Jesus is alive. And when the two men going to Emmaus recognized Jesus, it wasn't until, you know, he sat down with them and he took the bread and he broke it and gave it to them that their eyes were open. And they saw Jesus and he disappeared from their sight. And they went immediately to find the eleven and they told them, it is true, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon just as he said. And the disciples after they had seen the risen Christ and they would meet with him over a period of 40 days, he told them to wait in Jerusalem until they had been clothed with power from on high. He would send the Holy Spirit to empower them. What did they do? They went out and they told the world that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing in him, you can have life in his name. They preached what Jesus commissioned them to preach that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Boom. They went out and they preached the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he rose again. And he is alive today. Because of all that happened on that first Easter Sunday, we have a future hope. Because Jesus lives, all who believe in him will also live. And there is more to life than what we see. We're not just living in a cave where this is the reality and this is all there is. When we die, death is not the end of everything. It's not extinction. When we die, we don't pass on into nothingness or some sort of nirvana. We don't become part of the universe, some cosmic energy that's out there. We don't die and become part of the circle of life like the Lion King where we simply become fertilizer for the flowers and the grass to grow again. We are not part of an endless cycle of reincarnation. The future God has planned for us is real and it is certain, it is personal, and it is unimaginably wonderful. There is a new heaven and new earth that God is preparing for us. We will see Jesus face to face in our flesh. We will stand upon the earth, as Job said, and we will see him with our own eyes. And we will live with him forever. And frankly, again, what the scripture says is no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. 
We can't imagine what God has prepared for us, but he has revealed it to us by his spirit, and he has given us pictures of what it will be like in heaven, but we don't know all that awaits us. And in this present world, we're going to deal with sin and suffering. And in this world, we're going to experience sorrow and loss and hardship and grief. And there are hopes and dreams in this life that are never going to be met. And there are longings that will go unfulfilled because we live in a fallen world. But one day, one day, God is going to satisfy it all. I love how Tim Keller puts it when he said that the resurrection is the restoration of what you've lost. And in that future day, you don't just get your body back. You get the body you've always wanted but never had. You know, and you think about the frailty of our flesh and the things that we deal with, that one day the lame will walk and the blind will see and the deaf will hear and our bodies will be glorified and made new and whole. And I think about Christians, even in our congregation, who, for example, a Christian who's maybe single, who wanted to be married, and you haven't found that right person yet, you've been waiting, you've said, I'm I'm only going to wait, I'm going to marry a believer, someone who's a follower of Jesus Christ, and you've been faithful in that. And maybe the years have passed, and you've not met that person yet, and you're thinking in your mind, I'm too old now, and nobody's ever going to marry me. I've lost that. It's gone. You know what the resurrection is? Jesus Christ is walking proof that you and I will miss nothing. That there's going to be a wedding feast and there will be real wine and there'll be real arms and it will be your wedding feast and it'll be my wedding feast, our wedding feast as we join with the Lamb. And it is going to be unimaginably wonderful. There is no religion There's no faith, there's no philosophy, there's no one else who has ever offered that kind of future. A future that is there, that is personal, that is certain, that is wonderful. And there is no more powerful message possible. And it is based on the historical fact of the resurrection. Who wouldn't want that? Wouldn't you want to live with Christ in that kind of eternity? Wouldn't you want to share in that hope? You could do that today. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you can come to know Christ today. If you will confess your sins and turn from them and turn to Christ and open your heart to Jesus as your Savior and Lord and welcome Him into your life, He will take you at your word, and he will do that. If you hear him speaking to you now and calling you to come into a relationship with him, to come and surrender your life to Christ, I want to urge you to do that, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that as I close this message in prayer. I'm going to pray a prayer of invitation, and I would ask you to pray it along with me in your own heart. And if today, for the first time, you are receiving Christ as your Savior and Lord, I want to urge you to tell someone of the decision you are making, to seal it in your heart, and to tell me or to tell someone else so we can help you to grow and to take those next steps in your relationship with him. Let's pray together. 
Our Father and our God, thank you for the hope that you have given us in Jesus Christ. And today we turn to Jesus. And if you're here, would you just say to him, Jesus, I thank you that you died on the cross for me. Thank you that you paid the penalty that I deserved. And Jesus, I ask you to forgive my sins, to come into my life, and to be my Savior and Lord. I pray that you would help me to grow in my understanding of what that means, to know you better and to understand your will for my life. But Jesus, thank you that you were willing to set me a sinner saved by your grace. Jesus, we love you. For those of us that have known and walked with you now for many years, we worship you and we thank you for the change that you've made in our life. And I pray that you would empower all of us to be your witnesses in this world where we live and work and the people we run into that we might honor you and help others to know you. We pray in your name. Amen.